Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powatic. Welcome to the Ref Club Thinking. I am Adam Powatic, and your other co-host today is Aaron Cameron. We are lenders with First National, as well as being co-host of the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Our guest today is Colin Bariliak, who is the Executive Managing Director Investments of Kingset Capital. I'm sure that most people here are aware of Kingset, know they're active, have seen their name attached to a lot of high-profile purchases and investment activity. We're going to do a real deep dive into the inner workings of of Kingset, investment decision-making, some of the culture, and the the rapid growth they've experienced over the last couple of years. Uh, But first, I want to welcome uh, Colin and thank him for sharing his time today with us. Thanks very much, uh, gentlemen. Happy to be here. So, Colin, before we get into to who Kingset is and and uh, you know or the deep dive we've got planned, can we get into you know your background and how you end up to where you are in Kingset? So, you know, quick background: I started in the real estate industry after university in around 2000. I joined a consulting advisory firm called Rural Page Advisors at the time. Today, that's called Cushman Wakefield Capital Markets. I think. It was a great place to start and uh, get a foundation for uh, real estate valuation, transaction, all sorts of things, due diligence. A really, really wonderful place to start with a great group of people. In 2005, I left there and joined BMO Capital Markets and spent three years there with uh, a background on capital markets and and more experience on M&A and other transactions. Again, phenomenal experience. And then in 2008, I had an opportunity to come and join Kingset Capital. And I've been here ever since. And uh, I'll tell you, it doesn't feel like I've been here since 2008. It feels like that went by a lot faster, as you can imagine. But yeah, that's my that's my real estate history in a nutshell. Could I ask, you know, 2008 is a long time ago. What was Kingset at the time? And what possessed you to jump ship and join what I'm assuming was was really kind of a startup? It was, you know, obviously a lot smaller than it, than it is today. I think at the time when I joined, I think I was like the 20th employee or something along those lines. We were in BC place, I guess, Brookfield place now, and, and sharing an office. Very, very different feel to where we are today, where we're, you know, in a floor and a half at Scotia Plaza with some hundred plus people working at Kingsley Capital today. AUM would have been, I don't know, probably a tenth of what it is today. But... You know, interestingly enough, I think one of the things that's the same, you know, as I think back to the partners of the time were John Love, Peter Agar, Stu Lazier, Rob Coomer was was there, Joe Mazzocco was there when I joined. And the personality of the company, you know, hasn't changed, despite the fact that we've gotten bigger. At the time, I think when 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 there was, you know, far fewer people and less funds and less assets under management, you know, we had had, I think, a collective understanding of what the values of the company were. As we grew, you know, John uh, and Anna uh, Kennedy, who's our our, uh, chief operating officer, formerly our our CFO, you know, really made it a priority to crystallize what those values were in the hopes that it would be easy for somebody new coming into the company to understand what that was and, and how to continue to operate and live their you know, day-to-day business and life with the same value set. And in doing so, you know, it's amazing because you're able to grow a business to limitless size and potential because you have this strong foundation of value. So that 
happened, you know, about, I think those, that, that type of process was put in place back in 2000 and I want to say around 2012. And from there, you know, it's been perfect because everybody that comes into Kingset knows, you know, sort of the Kingset way and behavior and how to, how to move forward and treat people with respect and, and uh, value relationships. And it's all from that foundation. Uh, set. So, you know, that's been so critical. And now, you know, I think, I feel like there's no limit to the upside of what Kingset can do because, you know, we want to make sure that if you're talking to me, it's the same, you know, presence, you know, ability to, to, to value sort of the same things, no matter if you're talking to me or talking to somebody who just started two weeks ago. So, you know, really hugely valuable to the growth of the company. Let's stick on the Kingset culture. Before we go there, you'll notice that Adam is rather formally dressed considering his <laughs> normal attire for these interviews. And yet I am not. And and there was actually a plan because it is kind of notorious in the commercial real estate industry that that at Kingset, it is very, um, I think it's white shirt or blue shirt and tie fairly, you know, often or if not all the time. And and I think Colin even indicated in our pre-call that no, no, I, I'll, I'll likely be in a white shirt and a tie. And so we decided we were going to do that, do that too. I unfortunately have had a slight family emergency. Nothing, nothing. I don't think that can be resolved. But I'm actually sitting in a Marriott hotel boardroom, wearing a literally sweatshirt and sweatpants because that's all I was able to pack in the rush to get out to Kingston. And and a thanks to the Marriott staff that allowed me to use this room because in COVID times you don't even have access to these things. And so I, I'm actually fortunate just to be on this call and have the opportunity to to interview Colin. And I apologize. I wish I was wearing my my white shirt and tie because that. I get, it would have just finished the ensemble as we're looking at the three of us on the screen. Clearly, one of these things doesn't belong, right? If we're playing the <laughs> playing the Sesame Street game, let's keep moving. Though on that on that culture topic, Colin, you know, Kingset is very opportunistic. I think is a is a good term, and and you've been there for a long time, and and you know, of course, we have to I guess reference John Love, who is. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the founder and kind of the setter of of the the culture, and that includes sort of the the attire that that's required. And maybe just talk through what that's like working in it, how it's evolved, but also how it makes you guys so successful. You know, I think the best way to describe it would be like positive intensity. You know, I think everybody feels very driven. You know, when they get up every day, that they can make an impact and and drive the business forward in their respective roles. That positivity, you know, stems from management, obviously, filters right down from, from the top, at, you know, John Love, and then all the way right down throughout the entire organization. There is a, a culture of inclusion. I think that um, has, has always been, I feel like has always been there uh, and been the case. And that's a collection, I think, of, of having, you know, a great set of people. But the intensity is is really what I think drives me, drives my team, drives the investments team, because it is a lot of fun. Everybody, I think, has lots of is empowered, has lots of rope, you know, like the ability to make decisions. And and I think, you know, it's it's a wonderful experience, I think, to to come and know that you can be a difference maker have the ability to make decisions, be responsible for running things. And that, and that goes, you know, from analyst level right up to, you know, the top. I think uh, the other the other thing that, you know, is important, obviously, with the positivity is, uh, and, and just sort of the feeling that 
what you're doing is directly impacting yourself is the co-investment ability. So the ability for all the employees to co-invest in all the funds. It's a wonderful way to stay motivated to know that, you know, if I find an opportunity that generates value, creates, you know, a return that it actually impacts my bottom line directly. And even more so, it's wonderful, I think, for our investors to know that my investment decisions, you know, are, are impacting me personally as well, that I'm not, you know, doing anything in an, in an effort to, you know, do something or make an investment that I don't think is the right thing to do because like my money's at risk. So, you know, that's a really, really great uh, alignment, I think, for the organization. Colin, there's one other aspect of culture that I wanted to, to ask you about that we had discussed before we started recording today. And that is the concept of never saying no to a meeting. And I know that uh, King said obviously is out there looking to, to beat the market on a regular basis. You never know where your next opportunity is going to come from. So can you describe how you incorporate never say no into a meeting into the way you know you handle your area of king set and then uh, how king set handles it as a whole yeah the uh the concept of relationships i think is some you know that's our sort of our core value set relationships and john you'll hear him say that all the time and pretty much anybody at king set for that matter and uh you know there is there is obviously we have a, a you know, an amount of capital that we're trying to find investment opportunities for and of course we generally i would say for the most part are placing that money directly as opposed to, you know, through broad marketed processes. I would say the majority of what we do would be, you know, direct and, and through direct relationships. And, you know, the only way to do that is to take as many meetings as you can and to meet as many people as you can. And I just, I think it's uh, so incredibly valuable to have that opportunity to get in front of somebody that either you have a, a good relationship with and, you know, want to, want to see on a regular basis or, or be even more exciting is when you get to meet somebody that you haven't met before and sit in front of them and say, you know, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? You know, the last question is about what, you know, is important to King set and what they're trying to accomplish. And from there, it becomes a really fun exercise of trying to find, you know, how to match sort of your capital solution with their investment need. And, that's a really, I find, I find that as part of my job is one of the most, most enjoyable things, you know, to be able to basically sit there and, and think through and just have a conversation. And out of that comes an idea. There's always an idea that comes out of it. Might not even be a real estate idea, but there'll always be, you know, an idea that comes out of it. And I, and I just think, you know, that's the, the key to the success of, you know, finding off-market deals. Yeah. So Colin, we're going to, we're going to weave that concept, I think, into the rest of this conversation. Because I think it's, it is part of the culture. We've started there. And, you know, for transparency, Adam and I and, and First National have a relationship with King said on your your debt side. And it's, and it's, and it's a very similar approach. Like, never say never. There's always potentially an opportunity to structure it in a way that just makes sense for everybody. Before we go there, though, I mean, Colin, we should just talk about your role and and the funds you manage and just kind of what it is you do specifically at Kingset. Yeah, sure. So um, I I'm responsible. I guess there are there are a variety. I guess not variety. There's just, there's a number of funds that Kingset has raised capital for. There's a mortgage business with with a junior and a senior fund that uh, Scott Coates is is the head of and has a team that focuses on sourcing opportunities for that business. And then there's effectively the the growth fund 
and the core fund. The growth fund was the very first pool of capital that was raised by Kingset uh, back in 2002, I believe. Um, and that you know was an opportunity fund trying to find uh, ways that they could you know buy a real estate asset, create a bunch of value, and then dispose of it in a finite period of time and and you know effectively generate a premium return. And that business today, that was growth fund one was in 2002. Growth we're on uh, growth fund seven today. So you know that's obviously been a big cornerstone of, of Kingset's business. We launched a core fund in 2008. That was, you know, basically trying to find a collection of uh, great real estate assets, well located, that you own forever, that you love and you own forever. So uh, Scotia Plaza fits that. We're, our office is in Scotia Plaza, so I'm here sitting in Scotia Plaza. Um, but you know, assets that are effectively, you know, intergenerational assets. So my role at Kingset is to look for opportunities for the, the core fund and the growth fund and to source and negotiate and transact on those opportunities. And in addition to that, you know, the benefit of working with a really great team here of analysts up to, you know, managing directors, and they are all solely focused on achieving that as well. So Colin, I think, I think it's best if we tackle those one by one, the two different funds. And I want to start with the, with the growth fund because, you know, premium returns sounds fantastic. You know, that's uh, very exciting for, for any investor. But it is a competitive market. So, like, how? What do you look at in terms of your target yields? How are you achieving them? How are you outperforming the market? So, you know, our 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 target for our growth fund is to, you know, fundamentally is to double our equity over a five year period. Um, sounds like simple sort of mantra, but by the same token, you know, not everything kind of quite fits that bill. Usually, I go into uh, a meeting or the process of determining what you know, kind of what what sort of fund or whatever it fits to become sort of secondary to the to the idea, which is like, what is the thesis? And does it seem like, you know, an interesting and compelling investment opportunity? And then from there, we sort of say to ourselves, like, what is the right sort of pool of capital for that investment opportunity? You know, if I had to sort of stack them all into sort of risk and return, because we spent a lot of time trying to mitigate risk and understand what is the right return for the risk you know, profile that you're taking on in that investment. You know, I'd say the growth fund is at the top end of the range being, you know, the most risky and therefore should be rewarded with the highest return. Down the stack would be, you know, maybe the, what we call the high yield fund, which is a, a mortgage business, but it's just effectively mess lending and a number of other sort of second mortgage opportunities. You're, you're sort of higher up the capital stack. As you guys know, I think you, we've done some business with uh, the First National where we've been, you know, in second position and things like that. You know, the core fund would probably slide in next, you know, because it uses less leverage than the growth fund, you know, targeting, trying to generate um, premium returns, but with lower risk. And then underneath that would probably be the senior mortgage fund, which is, which is a, you know, basically a first mortgage business. So, you know, those are sort of all the different pools of capital. And, you know, it, it stems from like, if you, if you think that there's an interesting real estate investment thesis. Um, we have the benefit, like we look at all asset classes, uh, you know, development versus producing. And then you, the second question I think becomes, how do I mitigate risk? And what return, what is the return expectation for that sort of risk that you're taking on? And then from there, you know, the discussion ensues into, you know, into sort of fitting the right pool of capital with that investment opportunity. 
So, so while we're sticking on the, the topic of growth fund, and we will get on to uh, you know, the core fund, but what would be your, your outer boundary? Like, you know, as an example, a deal you looked at in the last couple of years where you thought, mm, that's a good deal, but it's just outside of our, our risk parameters. Like, where do you start to fall off you know, your, your interest in trying to fit it into your, your growth fund where the risk is just, uh, just, uh, just beyond what you want to stomach? You know, I, I think if I had to pick on an asset class where we, where we sometimes struggle and the risk profile would be development in general, if I could just sort of generalize development. I mean, the concept of development is you, you put a large outlay of cash and then you have to wait you know, three years, five years, or however long the development timeframe is to, to earn your return. And, you know, nothing hurts an IRR better than not collecting income along the way. So, you know, that's, you know, an area where as a result of having sort of our, our underlying investment return targets, you know, you're, you often find that you're included from sort of a number of those types of opportunities. And that while, you know, on the page, it looks like the development profit is healthy and meaningful, you know, because just time value money, it's, you know, you're not, you're not getting, you know, the same adjusted, you know, rate of return as you would otherwise an investment, an income producing investment. And, you know, the other thing with development is obviously there's just so many risks that over the years, I think with build decor and a number of other, you know, institutional sort of institutionalization of development in general has, you know, for, to some degree ignored some of those risks, or I guess marked down the, maybe the, the risk weighted return um, of that investment class. So I would say, you know, Often, I'll, I'll, uh, and I see lots of development deals. I feel like there's a lot of development deals out there today. I think that's one asset class today that seems to be, you know, lots of availability to do a development deal in all asset classes. And, you know, I find sometimes we struggle to generate, to get to the right sort of return hurdle. You know, nothing works better than having some, some income producing capability of the asset. It's just, it's so meaningful. And, you know, with the right leverage, you can, you can get your sort of income return up. So much of your IRR then is sort of front-loaded or sort of even across the piece. And then your value creation opportunity as a result becomes, you know, half of it or a smaller portion of, of sort of the total value creation thesis. I think that's sort of my, my uh, that's where I find we struggle, you know, from time to time. Colin, we're gonna we're gonna just warn. We've got twenty minutes left, and we're gonna move into more specific conversations about how you kind of manufacture yield. Because I think using examples of of what you're looking at and how you perceive the market. I mean, a twenty percent IRR, which is you know that five year sort of double your your equity, is a is a lofty target. Before we go there, I was just curious about how you track your failure rates. And I, I'm a lender, so we look at defaults, right? When, when people aren't making their mortgage payments, that goes into default. And I'll use an example of the CMBS world where you know, we often try to, you know, I mean, historically anyway, sell our, our CMBS uh, pools in the United States where they ask for default rates. And in Canada, we say our, you know, our default rates are 1% or 2 or 5%, very low, versus in the US, they're, they're just much higher. Because in, when you're trying to attract the kind of yield that you're, you're trying to get to, there's got to be an acceptance that you're going to have some misses. You're going to have some hits and you're going to have some misses. Like you're, you're going to hit some home runs, you're going to strike out. One, how do you track that? I guess is the first question. And two, what is that ratio look like for you? 
when you're making investments and you thought you'd get that 20% IRR and it just, it just didn't work out. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, look, it's easy to track because it's just straight cash box accounting. You put a dollar in and you're trying to get, you know, $2 back out and, and over a certain time period. And, you know, if we focus on the growth fund, you know, the growth fund is, is a closed end fund. So, you know, you get, you, you, it's all cash in, cash out. And for sure, there's misses. Like you can't have a, a, a an investment pool of assets where they're, you know where you have 100% hit rate all the time. And so, you know, the beauty is that because it's a fund, because you outperform on some investment ideas or assets or thesis or whatever, and you underperform on others. And on average, you know, if you can hit that return, then you have the benefit of going back to your pool of uh, investors and 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 asking them to re up on the on the next opportunity. For sure, we've had misses. Like, there's no doubt about it. But collectively, you know, when we looked back, sort of our historic performance, we've always managed to to make that hurdle. I think there's, I think in, uh, I think back to our second growth fund. I think that's one where you know we we underperformed the twenty, and I think even in that instance, you know, it was still a, a very solid return, and uh, and our and we were we were you know at least from the perspective of our investors, you know, they were grateful for for you know, the return in that instance. But, you know, that's that's the sort of the beauty of having a, a, a portfolio of assets as opposed to, you know, making one bet. You get to make lots of different bets in all different asset classes. And and yeah, and overall you're here you're trying to achieve that overall return target. So so let me jump in. Adam, I know you're supposed to go next. Let me jump in. So so Colin, like how many I'm putting on the spot a little bit. Like, is is a five percent IRR a fail? What is a ten percent? Like, when you guys are sitting in a room and go, okay, well, this one didn't didn't make it to the way that we thought. We didn't retrofit. We didn't reposition. We didn't, you know, whatever it is. What is the threshold? And, and have you had negatives? I'm just curious if you had like a like a like a buy and it just it just and sometimes it's out of your control. I, I appreciate that, right? Like, it might be the city changed right. their 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 plans or whatever. But you know, and how yeah. often does that happen? I'm curious if the pool of, of capital that we currently, you know, have raised, have are investing, you know, if that pool doesn't generate a 20% IRR, I feel like it's a fail. Like, I, you know, that's, that's my goal and my role is to, is to, you know, ensure that on average for the pool of capital that you're hitting the, the overall return. And, you know, it's the success of, I think, that and the track record, which lends itself to being able to continue to raise pools of capital, you know, as as we've been able to do. So, like, I, I think when you when you're you're beating yourself up on one asset that may not have gone exactly right, you know, you're looking to the overall pool to say, like, you know, can I have I had opportunity to outperform on other assets to make up, you know, that that difference. And listen, I've been here since 2008, and that's all, you know, in, to, 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 you know, the credit of Kingset, that's, you know, I've had the benefit of enjoying sort of that track record since 2008 is that we've always been on average able to, um, you know, perform and outperform our return target for a growth fund. And so, so part of maintaining that uh, the 20% IRR is, of course, you know, deals that might require you to pivot. You know, this is, this is real estate that generally has some, some kinks to it to work out, hence the higher yield and, that, you know, that's what you're getting paid for. And I have worked on uh, with Kingset on the debt side with some some higher higher return product that did require creative thinking and full 
full credit to Kingset, uh, the, the solution finding was was pretty phenomenal. So on the investment side, can you give any examples you know, of, of pivots you've had to do with real estate that you owned in the growth fund where either you know, you were, you going in, you understood you had to pivot it, or you got blindsided by something, pivoted, and ended up with that 20% IRR so you could sleep peacefully at night? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the key to, to pivoting is like, and, and this is, you know, I think true of any investment, it's like, is you got to be first. I mean, that's, that's critical. So speed and execution. Um, if you, if you are sensing Calgary, you know, the Calgary office market is a perfect example. I mean, I, I think while everybody was wondering whether or not as the office market was declining, their rents were declining and everyone was wondering whether or not, you know, we were going to go to zero NER deals. Like, you know, the people that were there first kept their buildings full <laughs> and now, you know, it's, that's the market that you're in. You know, thankfully, the portfolio theory, you know, while, while that, you know, has obviously had a negative impact on, you know, our various portfolios, that's, there's been positive um, offsets to, to effectively, you know, override sort of those negatives. But like, for sure, when you got to pivot and you, and you make that decision, you got to move fast, like speed and execution is always, you know, the way to sort of do that. If you hum and haw or, question or you know you think to yourself like oh, maybe i'll just wait and see what happens in six months i've never had a, a situation where it's been better six months later same goes for when you're buying real estate like there's been instances where we you know we're doing a land assembly or um you know there's there's an investment opportunity i mean it hasn't been the case that if you waited six months you know it's cheaper later so again like i just think speed and execution and if you're if you're going to pivot is key I love that comment. There's never been a scenario where if you waited, it'll be cheaper later. That goes for if you're a if you're a renter thinking about getting into the home renting, about getting into the home buyers market. It's it's never going to be cheaper. I'm sorry, uh, particularly in the right. major markets, right? Colin, I'm going to throw some numbers out there. Sorry, uh, in the next 15 or 20 minutes, Colin, we're going to go into kind of just the liquidity in the marketplace that you participate in, uh, and then we'll talk about some specific asset classes and just how you kind of manufacture your yield to get to that 20% IRR. So to set that stage you know, for the conversations about specific asset classes, let's just talk about, you've got, and I'm going to throw numbers out there that you've already provided to us. You've got $500 million to deploy in the next two years. So $250 million a year, but you also use leverage, right? And and, and I think you can, you can describe this or explain it a little bit further uh, in your answer, which is approximately sort of 60, 70, 75%. So that puts in, puts you into a, sort of a $2 billion range per for the next couple of years, which is a ton of, of volume, right? Like to, to try to deploy $2 billion of acquisitions over the next two years is just seems un, just seems daunting to me. So maybe talk through your investment objective, talk through what it's like to, to have that type of capital uh, and just how you go about trying to find the opportunities to really deploy that amount of capital. So, um, yeah, so you're talking about our growth fund. Our growth fund has about 500 million of equity, you know, left to deploy and for a $2 billion investment program. And, and so that math is obviously using 75% leverage, 25% equity. You know, I think it, it you know, may sound like a, a daunting sort of amount on the surface. I think, um, you know, I remember I used to not sleep all at night thinking, I'm not sure how we're going to get that done. And then every year, you know, things, things happen and we seem to deploy it to, you know, uh, the right, um, 
investment uh, opportunities. So um, I've stopped worrying about it <laughs> to some extent. I still have to stay up at night, but all for all, all sorts of other reasons. Um, but anyway, um, you know, I think um, there's a few things that, I, that we've been able to participate in, which I think help our ability to sort of target uh, larger opportunities. And that's, you know, Canada is a relatively small investment landscape. And whenever something's a little bit too big, I find um, that the investment um, pool sort of thins out. So, you know, one of the keys to our success has been on larger scale assets where there might not be as many investors to basically look at sort of that, that level of, of, an, of investment just because, you know, for concentration issues or um, just general size, you know, it's just a little bit too large for, you know, the typical fund size of a fund or, you know, if uh, certain investors trying to find sort of that type of asset to slide into sort of their portfolio, you know, usually if it's too big, it's, it, it becomes a little bit more challenging. So that's been, I think, a competitive advantage for us. You know, another competitive advantage has been we're very fortunate to get a lot of looks at things from, you know, a number of sort of principals or, or, you know, brokers or investment banks and stuff because, you know, we generally say we'll do it and do what we say we're going to do. So um, that that comes down to sort of the reputation behind ability to execute. And, you know, that's been unbelievably important. And, you know, we've always valued that from day one and make sure that, you know, we do what we say we're going to do. And so, you know, that, that when you're, when you're a broker and you're trying to put a deal together and especially, you know, a complex one, you, you want to make sure that the counterparties that you're dealing with, they're going to do what they say they're going to do. Otherwise the deal is not going to close. So, you know, that reputation, you know, has certainly been something that we've been very careful to guard and to build on and to, to, you know, make sure that from a labor relationship standpoint, it's, you know, critical and part of the key to our success. And then lastly, you know, we've never been scared to try new things. You know, I think our first investment deal in the growth fund in LP1 was an office building, you know, like an empty office building that we messed up. And I think at the time, probably the idea was let's go find office buildings. Today, I, I don't think there's a single asset class that we would you know, take a look at or invest in. And and whether it's debt or equity, I mean, there's just so many sort of opportunities. There's the broad spectrum of, of everything that sort of Canadian landscape has to offer real estate that we can take advantage of. So, you know, I would say those three things are probably, you know, the most important and critical sort of path to success for us to be able to deploy that capital and right, generate the right uh, risk-adjusted returns. So of this, the, the $2 billion that you're, you're trying to deploy... You know, Aaron, and you kind of touched on it already that the majority of that would be comprised of debt in order to enhance the yield on your equity. But in a previous conversation we had with you, you, you shared a contrarian view to the the positive elements of of interest rates on yields. And uh, as much as it uh, pains me as a lender to bring this up, I would love if you could share with everybody, you know, your view on on interest rates and yield. Oh boy, I can't remember what, exactly what I said on interest rates and yield. I think, I think for sure. I think you said, you know, I think you said they were going down, and interest rates are going to be as low for a long time, and everybody should leverage as much as they possibly can. I, I can recall correctly. Anyway, yeah. not to put words in your mouth. You know, maybe that'll breed opportunity. So maybe I, maybe I will agree with that. 
No, you know what? I, 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 I don't know where interest rates are going. I think we've learned for a long time now that like nobody knows where interest rates are going as much as we all love to predict. You know, we say they're going higher. I think they're going higher. You know, probably they are going higher. You know, I think it's amazing uh, when, when you think about, I think, especially on a, a closed-end fund where you're holding an asset for five years and you're trying to, you're trying to generate, you know, you're trying to double your equity. What I find interesting is when you start to fiddle around with the assumptions on your model and to try and ascertain or assess what the risks are, you play, you play with, you know, sensitizing all the variables. And when you fiddle around with, with the interest rate, you know, 25 basis points, 50 basis points, 100 basis points, it's just not that as sensitive to the pro forma as other as- aspects of the pro forma are like rent. You know, rent has a massive swing. If you're up or down, you know, by a single percentage point, you know, it has a massive impact on your overall returns. Cap rate has a has a obviously a very is very sensitive and has a massive impact on the overall returns. Interest rates, you know, doesn't. It's it's obviously if interest rate went from you know whatever two and a half percent today to six percent tomorrow, then yes, that would have a have a large impact on your returns. But you know, and maybe that's the next shock. But I don't see that as necessarily being the case. I think it would be hard for me to sort of see that that or I guess what the catalyst is for that you know, in this, in this narrow world. So, you know, yes, using leverage is important uh, to generate, to, to, to help us generate return. I think, you know, the other thing that, that happens when you're looking at opportunities for the, for the growth fund is when they do have income and you are generating, you know, effectively a levered return and you're getting the benefit of obviously leverage at a rate that is lower than your unlevered rate that you get to sort of create enough of a, a yield where you would say to yourself, like, you know what, if things get bad, and you know, on the back end and uh, sort of the residual value, like at least I have an asset that's generating cash flow and I'm gen- still generating a double digit return because, you know, of the leverage that I'm using. So I think, you know, that's obviously, again, a big part of being able to generate, you know, the IRR just to, to, to basically try and find those investment opportunities that have some cash flow. So, Colin, it was the the effect on IRR that was what stuck in my mind from previous conversation that I did want to bring up today. So, thanks thanks for sharing that, and uh, we'll ask uh, the real estate uh, forum to edit this part out, of course. But uh, uh, next, I want to talk about your about your core fund, Colin. And I think that uh, a number of your trophy assets reside in there. So, you describe the you know the, the the goals and target yields of the core fund, and you know a couple of the you know the real headline headline assets you've got in there. Yeah, so the core fund is a is a pool of assets that again we you know we intend on holding forever, and it's an open fund. Um, the target there is to generate, I believe, eight to ten percent total return. And you know, obviously, my target is sort of like twelve. Like I'd like to be able to say, you know, what what investment opportunity can we make for the core fund that you know lock, knocks the lights out? We bought Scotia Plaza um, some time ago, and you know I've owned that, and that's been, you know, I think a great um, asset for the for the core fund in generating stable returns. And you know, here we are with COVID is a perfect example, and you know we managed to continue to do uh, lease deals, and and uh, Scotia Plaza has been a really great tenant of ours. Actually, one of the other great things about Scotia Plaza as a tenant, or as or Scotia Bank as our tenant has been uh, the relationship I think that we've managed to sort of build on uh, now that we own the asset. You know, we've become so much closer to 
that bank, investment bank, lending. I mean, they participated in a number of uh, lending opportunities for us. And again, yeah, like I just love sort of how that relationship built. You know, there's so many sort of different things that you can do when you just when you own an asset. There's, you know, the relationship sort of presents all sorts of interesting opportunities. And having access to, obviously, competitive debt is great for our core fund business as well. So that whole package of sort of relationship asset performance of Scotiabank has been great. I think I think that altogether is a really great story for the core fund. The other you know investment we recently, which you know I enjoyed working on last year, especially during COVID, as you can imagine, would have been interesting. A little bit of a roller coaster ride was uh, the privatization of Northview REITs, where that was a, a five billion dollar transaction, and it was pieced together. I not pieced together, but there was there was basically the right assets went sort of with the right pools of capital. So the core fund bought a number of assets that, you know, we feel are long-term core assets, GTA focused and, and uh, Kissner Waterloo focused and, you know, assets that we think that over the long run, you know, will just get better and better. And then there's a collection of assets that are for the value add portfolio out of that, which are turn them, do the right turns and then move them out. Quite frankly, like I think maybe it's probably hard to distinguish exactly which is the core asset, which is the value add asset. But I think because I think multifamily in general has so many you know attributes to hold that investment for an extended period of time. But for the value add fund, you know, we had the ability, I guess, the opportunity to take a collection of, of assets, you know, it was three billion dollars or two and a half billion, and and deploy a bunch of capital and and have you know an investment thesis around that that we think will be hopefully successful. And then there's the North vehicle, which is still a, a public entity that uh, you and I can buy, you know, on TSX. So, sorry, not me. I'm not precluded from buying it, uh, but others can buy it on the TSX. So, you know, those are those are, I think, two investments that you know I think are are great, you know, bookends to the portfolio, and and I think provide you know really good, solid, stable returns with uh, great growth potential for the core fund. Yeah, thank you for that um, Northview acquisition. We are Northview's largest lender, and so there were a hundred or plus assumptions we had to process. And I'm pretty sure I'm precluded from investing in that also. So anyway, when you say you and me, you mean the royal you and me? Correct, correct. Not you and me. Yeah. Let's put. Let's put. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Colin. Uh, we got just a couple minutes left. So, what asset class gets you the most excited? So, what is it that what what sim comes across your desk for both funds where you go, oh, geez, okay, this is, this is good. And I want you to be specific. Don't give me like, it's got to be, you know, it, it, you know, it's all about opportunity. It's all about, it's, you know, it's all about, you know, <laughs> depends on the, the, the location, all this. Give me some specifics of asset classes that you're kind of really looking for, for both of your funds. Where you're saying where there's a conflict, like where there's a potential conflict? No, 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 no. More that you want to invest in that you think it's exciting for you to deploy capital into. Yeah. Cause I'll remind you in our pre-call, you talked about, you know, data warehouses. We talked about, you know, hospitality. And is there is there something that you're kind of like, you know what, this is where I can make the yield for either the growth or the core that that really kind of feeds your appetite? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, there's a bunch of investments that come to mind. I'll, I'll pick on one. Atrium Bombay is a, is a good opportunity to talk about. I mean, we didn't talk about this on the pre-call, but Atrium Bombay, as you know, at, uh, at the corner of uh, Dundas and Young, Big, massive asset, you know, comprises an entire city block, has all sorts of really interesting value-add opportunities. 
I think when I first looked at that opportunity, which was off market, by the way, but you know, when I first looked at that opportunity, I was I had sort of my growth fund hat on, and thinking, you know, we could read. There's a great opportunity to reposition retail. You know, there's some two level stuff you can do that would be really cool. You're levering off of sort of the the amount of traffic and people that go through there, and you got Eat Center across the across the way, and you know that sort of continues to try and find ways to expand because they don't have enough space for everybody there, all the tenants that want to get in there. And uh, and then the office, you know, was a really wonderful repositioning opportunity because, you know, it had great clear height. It never really been touched. It's always sort of been occupied by CIBC. CIBC has been moving, you know, out slowly to go over to their new uh, tower and, you know, had a really sort of neat you know, office repositioning opportunity, great location on the subway. And then there's a bunch of like res density or office density that you can unlock. So like awesome, lots of sort of different ways to create value. Love it. The reason why it ended up in our core fund, not our growth fund, was because we realized that it didn't fit the growth fund timeframe. It's just such a big asset and sort of to do all of those things within a five-year period probably isn't achievable. And again, you know, it goes back to my point where like, if you love the investment thesis, you have like, you basically think to yourself like, there's so many ways that I create value here. Like I want to buy it. Now, how do I like, what is the right sort of pool of capital? And so our core fund made the investment along with uh, TD Asset Management. And, uh, and so we own that asset together. And there's all sorts of interesting things, you know, that we're going to do there that are, that, you know, is all the same investment thesis today. It's just, you know, it'll obviously take more time. And repositioning office and leasing up office and making it cool and you know the right type of space for that location and tech and things like that. You know you want to make sure that you get right, so you 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 take the right amount of time and you're patient and you know you make sure that uh, it's a it's a great offering when it's completed. That would be an investment opportunity. You know that would be more specific. We never talked about data centers or you know hotels. We obviously have looked at those opportunities too. We own interest in uh, two hotels, the Royal York and 475 Young, which is the courtyard Marriott. You know, again, it's as you look at each asset class, you know, you're trying to fig- figure out if, you know, on a risk-adjusted basis, you can generate the right return. And, you know, data centers is tricky because it's expensive to build and, you know, it's hard sort of to attract the right tenants there, it's specialized, it's hard to get financing on, you know, so we've looked at a number of those types of opportunities. We haven't pulled the trigger on any of them yet. I think there's a need in the future, but you know it's not clear today that for the risk that you're taking on, that the return makes sense. Yeah, I mean, there's so much growth in that e-commerce space and, and data centers in general, and the amount of data that's out there. I was having a conversation with my team the other day about how we can't receive emails that have more than 150 megabytes of you know, attachments, which I think when that policy was set three years ago or whatever that 150 megabytes seemed like a huge amount of data. And now it's just, it, it's just, you know, a multiple terabyte seems like not that big of a deal. When I remember a hard drive of terabytes was massive, you know, just a couple of years ago. So I, you know, to your comment about, you know, data centers being, I think a nuanced investment are, are going to grow. One of the things that I've heard is that, you know, an autonomous vehicle will utilize and need to access, I think it's four terabytes of data a day, each car. Because the premise behind, obviously, sort of the artificial intelligence and driverless cars is, is there's a database of sort of experiences that cars have had. And so in the, in the interest of making an autonomous decision, um, an artificial intelligence decision, you draw from the experiences that are on the database. And so 
if you think about four terabytes per car per day, you know, that's getting stored somewhere in a centralized, you know, system where other cars can access it, you know, it's a staggering amount of data just on that, you know, one instance alone. One small component of the just massive data set that's being accumulated, being created and accumulated. I hate to say it, Colin, we're out of time. Thanks so much for taking the time for this interview. It was a pleasure. I've got four or five items on my my list that we didn't even get to, but that just shows you how much there is going on in your world. And uh, hopefully we can have you back on and just keep the conversation going. Thanks very much for having me. I'd love to do it again. Thanks, Colin. All right, welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where uh, we kind of digest the conversation we just had with Colin. What an interesting conversation. You know, I'm always, I don't want to say enamored, but I, I certainly have a lot of respect for the Kingset organization and just what they stand for, the way that they are so consistent across all of their different components of the organization. I mean, of course, at First National, we've got lots of exposure to their debt side and the people that are originating mortgages. And, you know, of course, at First National, we, you know, quote unquote, deploy capital on behalf of third party institutions, one of them being Kingset. And so I, I know a bunch of people in that organization, but I don't know a lot of people on Colin's side of, of the business, and yet they're very consistent, right? And I, I, you, know, you and I have had the fortune of interviewing John Love, and you can see it right all the way through that they are all very, very consistent. And I, I took away from that interview that they all think and eat and sleep the same way, right? Yeah, they sleep in their white shirts and, <laughs> and uh, wake up in the morning, they have the same breakfast, they all have to drink black coffee like it's and I don't mean it like in a negative way I'm not I'm not trying to say that they're they're robots by any means but they just it's a testament to the culture that they've built and that everybody buys in because of how successful that they've been well and and they're thinkers too um you know there's clipping coupons all their stuff is meant to outperform you know on the debt side they for sure play in a space that's got a lot more you know creativity to it to manage risk and get compensated for it appropriately so every interaction I've had over in that shop you know, has been pretty impressive. There's a lot of people that can really wrap their heads around real estate and put together interesting deals. It's also a testament to why they've grown so much. I think that Colin referenced that in 2008, they were one-tenth the size of assets under management they are right now. That was not that long ago. That's a, that's a pretty big uh, growth trajectory. And he also mentioned in the same breath as well that they were one-fifth the amount of people so from a productivity point, they're producing much more much yeah. more assets under management per person. But of course, appreciation would uh, be responsible for part of that. Well, uh, yeah, I got to be honest. You're right. It's the thinkers. They're all thinkers. Like that is like, like whoever is head of their HR. That's clearly sort of a, the first check mark. Is that are we hiring somebody that can objectively and critically think through a, a problem? And that's definitely been my experience. Well, I mean, one of the really interesting things is just to talk about the amount of capital that they've got to deploy just on the equity side, right? I mean, it was what, 500 million over the next two years. So 250 million a year, but then that's leveraged, right? So that's not that's not all their money. And he had thrown the number of 75% leveraged, plus or minus 5%, I guess. But still, that's a, that is a ton of acquisitions, right? I mean, he, I think he said it, $2 billion over two years. Trying to buy a billion dollars worth of real estate. I mean, I made that point. I asked him about how hard that is. And he said, well, think about the Northview purchase, right? Like that's where it's really got to come from, right? Well, I mean, we recently had a conversation with uh, Jim Costello, who tracks global capital flows. And we were talking about detractors for foreign investment into Canada. And he specifically cited that there's just not that many big, chunky deals 
rolling around in our market and pension funds tend to gobble a lot of them up. So, you know, to that point, you're not going to just come across $200 million deals, you know, every day in your inbox. They're pretty unusual and trying to find the right one, especially with them too, if they're trying to look for things that they can, you know, really squeeze some yield out of it too. It's not going to be hitting their inbox every day, something to deploy the capital no, into. Oh, yeah. And that's, and that's a good, good point. Like they're not competing for those AAA assets. I mean, yeah, of course they own the Royal York and Scotia Tower and a number of other sort of trophy assets, but that's not really where they're looking for, right? They're looking for more of that sort of adjusted risk yield that again makes them makes them such an interesting an interesting player in our in our real estate community. Okay, I'm gonna throw a question at you because I wrote it down and I I don't remember. He said salad investor, and he referenced the salad investors. Do you know what he was talking about? I might have to Google that real quick before I answer. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure to be uh, to be honest. I don't know if that's a, if that's a proprietary term, the king set, or uh, just something we're not in the loop I, on. I, while we were interviewing him, I wrote down salad investor, question mark, question mark, what? <laughs> and I, meant, I probably meant to come back to it, but I, just, I forgot to go back to him. So there we go. For the listeners, what the hell is salad investor? Come on, let us know. Put it in the, put it in the chat or uh, send us an email if you can, please. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as as you know, we're big on terminology, and that would be an interesting one to share. But yeah, I think that is it. We're gonna wrap it up here on uh, the after show for Colin Bariliak. Super interesting episode. Thanks to the Ref Club for putting that together. See everybody next time. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.